and welcome to the Make an Adjustment podcast. I'm your host, Julie, and I'm excited you are here today because we have a special guest with us. But first, I'd like to say a quick thing. Um, last week, I put out a short episode stating that I was having difficulty getting music on my podcast, and if you listened to it, there was music. Yay! I finally did it. woo I figured it out, and I'm completely elated. I want. I kept pushing through, making adjustments, and staying positive, and I'm getting there with this editing stuff. Uh, thank you, Podcastle, for your help and support. Now, with that said, we also uh, have a special guest today that has made a lot of adjustments in his life. Um, he was the one who helped me name this podcast, and I'm super excited for you to be here today, JJ. Thank you for having me. I'm just blessed to be able to sit here and share this mic with you today. I'm so excited. And we also have another behind-the-scenes guest with us today, and we have Jaden here acting as our resident engineer, and today's his 18th birthday. Happy birthday, Jaden. Thank y'all. Thank y'all. Appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. Okay, so... Welcome, JJ, and thank you for taking the time here today. JJ is currently Jaden's high school baseball coach. He has been a true, true blessing to our family, and he is able to bring the best out in Jaden. JJ was signed with the Phillies out of Lubbock Christian University. He played a total of 12 professional seasons as a pitcher, and life took a turn. So he's here to share his story and how... He had to make the biggest adjustments of his life in order to save his life. Welcome, JJ. We are glad you're with us. Thank you for agreeing to be my first guest. I know you all, you have told this story on a few occasions. Um, so we're kind of just going to let you take it over and take the reins and do what you need to do. <laughs> all right. Uh, um, first of all, I, I definitely have to give thanks to God for uh, loving me so much and uh, sending my own personal guardian angel, my former high school sweetheart, mm-hmm. uh, my wife, my beautiful uh, Cindy Garner Munoz for being a devoted Christian woman all of her life and hearing God's call to go back and pick me up and bring me out of the muck, out of the mire, and find a way to get me into a rehab facility so that I could turn my life around. And that was with great cooperation with my parents, albeit reluctant, because, of course, they had seen firsthand what the devastation of the addiction to drugs and alcohol had done to our family and the way it destroyed my first marriage. And uh, they were at their wits' end, and... They really didn't know how to go about it, but Pop found an article in a newspaper and it was about parents of drug addicts. And he told Cindy, I guess in a text message, to my understanding, that they go grab a copy of the, the paper. And she went to a couple of different stores, finally was able to find a copy, read the article. It had an email and a phone number for her to contact those people. And, uh, there are so many, so many twists that tie into the six degrees of separation, if you will, from people that I knew from my past that were associated with these people. And it, it's, it's just uh, the intricate weaving, if you will, 
of God's thread to keep us all bound together. And it's been a remarkable journey. 31 years mired in addiction from the ripe old age of 12. And wow. it was an arduous and difficult path by accident of how the drugs came to be about. But when you get the taste of the drugs at an early age, it's all of the dopamine receptors in your brain just want to receive that gratification. And in studying and research over the last almost 13 years that you come to find out the chemical reactions and then all of the uh, synapses in your brain keep firing and they want that and they want that and they want that. So it creates an ache within your body to replenish that feeling. And so it wasn't something that I set out that I wanted to become an addict. It was just what your body craves and then how we go about. And uh, unfortunately for me, I stumbled upon it at early age of 12. I struggled through junior high, went from being a straight A student, uh, on a roll, and then all of a sudden now, I don't want to do my homework. Uh, and, it was perfect attendance, and now I don't want to go to school. But, you know, I didn't know. My parents didn't know um, the warning signs that seeing what was out there. And then, of course, going to high school, uh, unbeknownst to all my dear longtime friends that was really close to, you know, they had no idea what I was doing in my closet, out in the woods behind my house, secretly. And then... Becoming a high school dropout hmm. and not graduating with my class. So that was something that, you know, it was the shame and there was the devil creeping in and like, you're an embarrassment to your family. Nobody wants you around. So now I run and hide with my grandmother who lives down in central Texas. And uh, of course she doesn't know any better. So she takes me in with open arms and, you know, my parents were beside themselves and like, well, you better not cause any trouble down there with her, you know, and uh, there came the the uh, the proverbial uh, threat by Pops is like, you know, I brought you into this world. I will take you out if I hear of you doing any wrongdoing at Mamaw's house. Of course, trying to walk the straight and narrow down there in a little small town of Rockdale, Texas. And of course, those people opening their arms to me and embracing me with love. Now, fortunately, unlike the big city here, you didn't have access to the drugs there. But then yeah. on the weekends when I did go back home, I'd see my parents for a little bit. Hey, I'm going to go hang out with my buddies. And then there it was. And then I'd go back with it. Albeit I never did it anywhere at home with my grandmother, sneaking off into the woods and finding different avenues to, to do those things, you know. I was always hiding something. And that's one of the, the things that the devil will bring you to. And it goes back to Adam and Eve when God called for them, knowing where they were, but they were hiding because they were ashamed. And that's uh, one of the things that I always did. I was hiding because of the shame, but I couldn't 
confess it to anybody because, you know, uh, it was taboo to talk about those things as a teenage child, you know, and uh, my parents were young. Uh, They didn't know any better, and they just thought I was going through the rebel teenage years. But still, somehow, God blessed me after going to high school for a fifth year and graduating from Rockdale, Texas. I still managed to get a baseball scholarship at Pinola Junior College. And uh, it was absolutely incredible. But there was, again, one of those tragic events that happened in my life that I used as a crutch to use that. Uh, After throwing a bullpen that day for Coach Jackie Davis, and God rest his soul, he passed away a couple of years ago, but mm-hmm. he's the one that gave me the opportunity to continue my baseball and to, quote unquote, further my education, <laughs> uh, which uh, is definitely laughed upon because I was a horrible student because of still struggling with addiction, unbeknownst to others. Uh, when he asked me to stay and not go, to visit my grandparents, which we were going to celebrate with them in Crockett, Texas, because I was going to be the first one to go on a full scholarship. Others had gone to college in my family under scholarships, but to my understanding, they weren't full rides. I was the first one to go under a full ride scholarship. And Coach Davis asked me to stay to come back to throw the next day. And so I said, well, can I call my grandparents to let them know that we're not coming? So sure, we made the phone call, let them know. And of course, my Uncle Charlie, who is the youngest of 13 kids on my mom's side of the family. And we were so close because at one point in time, mom and grandma were pregnant at the same time because he's only five and a half months older than me. Wow. Yes. So he and I were... Laurel and Hardy, Evan Costello, <laughs> we were like brothers. I was his shadow, and uh, he was on the other phone in the other room listening, and uh, he was like, dude, you got to come because, well, I'm going to say it now that you're not coming. We're going to have a surprise party for you, dude. And I was like, man, I'm sorry. I can't. I'm going to stay here and throw again for them tomorrow. They want to see if I'm going to be a starter or a reliever. They want to see how my arm responds throwing back-to-back days. He's like, all right, man, well, you know, I'll see you next time. And that was the last time I ever used the word promise because that day I said, I promise you, I'll see you afterwards tomorrow. Well, sadly that night, apparently they still had the party anyway. And on his way home from the party, he was killed in an accident. Oh, no. Yes. So... At his funeral, the plan that he and I had was he was going to be my agent, and he was going to carry my bags, and we were going to take the world by storm. I was going to play baseball, and we were going to take care of the family. And so my promise to him at his funeral was, I will carry this out. So God blessed me with that opportunity to continue and go, and the whole time, all I could think about was, how am I going to provide for this huge family? 
Again, my mom having 13, uh, 12 other siblings. Wow. And my grandparents. And then uh, my dad's side of the family. And, you know, it was like, okay. So there was that bound, determined within me that knew I was going to do this. I knew from age five. First time they put a baseball in my hands. You know, <laughs> you're going to watch me play on TV one day. I'll never forget saying that to my family. <laughs> and it's been my mantra ever since, you know, I'm going to do this. I will not fail. But still, struggling through addiction, why did God carry me through all of that? And I truly believe it was for me to be here in this moment in time. He protected me all those years to never catch a case relating to drugs. And how many times did I get behind the vehicle, drunk out of my mind, and drive home and just to wake up in a driveway, either at my apartment complex where I lived while I was playing ball or in the houses that we rented and wake up asleep in the driveway. It just a hedge protection wrapped around a sinner who knowingly knew I was about to do what the things that I did that night before. How could he protect me? That's just his love for me. That's yes. his love for us. Yes. And so going through that, through all my entire baseball career, so many nights of carousing after the games and going all night long and then coming in as the team is on their way out to go to the gym to go work out. So I'm coming in, I see them, and I make a U-turn, and I go with them to go work out. And they're looking at me like, dude, you smell like a brewery. What are you doing? And it's like, well, I got to work it out. I got to work it out. And then afterwards, going back to the hotel to take a quick power nap and then get up a couple of hours later, grab a bite to eat, back at the yard, and work out again, and then do it over and over and over for so many years. It's like, man, you know, my teammates, so many was like, how do you do this? Unbeknownst to them, when I woke up from my little power nap, I was doing some more drugs to pick me up for the next. So it was a vicious cycle that I was just trading water. I was going nowhere. And truth be told, that's the reason why I never made it to the big leagues. It wasn't because I didn't have the stuff, but it was all about the fact that people knew that something was not right. People knew that seeing me coming in and making the U-turn and going right back up, they knew something was amiss, all right? But, you know, they're not really coming out and saying, well, hey, man, you need to do something. And there were many, many guys that reached out and tried to talk, and I have to say, uh, Dwayne Hosey, uh, Jose Moda were two of the biggest, huge Christian men that said, hey, man, you know, you know God loves you, right? I know God loves me. I said, okay. They never preached at me. They always talked with me. And those two guys always have a special place in my heart because, mm-hmm. you know, they tried to, they tried to reel me in, but at that point in time, I was just too far gone to be able to accept anything. Harold Reynolds, another one that was just, he was adamant in asking me poignantly. He's like, hey, 
after this game, we were in New Orleans in 1995 with Omaha Royals. He was trying to make a comeback, and uh, he said, I want to meet with you, and let's go out to eat after the game. So after we showered and got back to the hotel, met him in the lobby, we drive around New Orleans and find us a little place to eat. Uh, he sat down, and he just looked me right in the eye, and he pointed at me, and he's like, why are you here? And I was like, uh, kind of thought for a few minutes. It's like, so I'm trying to get back into the game. I'm trying to get to the big leagues. Because uh, this is the year after having Tommy John surgery. Oh, wow. So I'm on rehab assignment with Kansas City Royals, AAA Farm Club, Omaha Royals, right? And so he's like, no, no, you're not hearing me. Why are you here? And didn't really understand the full weight of the question. But it still, to this day, has weighed so greatly with me. It's like, why am I here? What exactly is my purpose? It's like, to solidify the bullpen. He's like, no, brother, you're not hearing me. <laughs> why are you here? And for the first time in all of those years was my first admittance that I had a problem. And I said, well, because I'm... Partying too much, and I'm chasing too many skirts, and I'm not focused on what I should be doing. And he says, now we have the truth. And that was the first time that I ever actually put it out there. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And he just said, listen, he goes, you have some of the best stuff I've ever seen from a little left-handed guy. And he shared at that moment in time, he goes, the best pickoff move that I've ever seen. And he's like, you shouldn't be here. You should be there. But you need to fix you first. Wow. And until the last 13 years, I didn't really fully comprehend what he was saying. I didn't really accept that as absolute truth. But now I honestly can look myself in the mirror and know that I was my own worst enemy. My free will is what kept me from going all the way, in my personal opinion, in my mind, making it to a big league roster. Now, not saying that I was as good as all of those guys and my contemporaries at that time, but I felt like I had the stuff. Right. And many of my former teammates, when we get back together, they share that. Dude, you had some of the best stuff that I've ever seen. And I say, okay, thank you, but eh, it could be a biased opinion because we're such close <laughs> friends. I don't know. But I do feel that I had the stuff. It's just that I couldn't get out of my own way. So then when I get to go travel internationally and play in Mexico and play in Puerto Rico and winter ball and Mexico and winter ball. I'm facing basically, in essence, big league rosters and I'm having relative success against them. Well, except in Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico, they lit me up like a Christmas tree. <laughs> <laughs> they really did. And, uh, I did not pitch well there, but, uh, it wasn't until I started truly getting myself in shape and really pushing the conditioning like I should have. Albeit still, my addiction, now I'm working out twice as hard, and I come to find out that once my body was at full strength like it should have been, now I'm putting up the velocity from 
before elbow surgery, 90, 91, 92, to post-surgery, I'm sitting at 93, 94, topping at 96, 97. And it's like, how's a little guy, five foot nine, 175 to 185 in my peak playing career, how is this guy throwing this hard? Well, I had to readjust, making my mechanical adjustments to take the strain off the elbow and the shoulder. I had to readjust my timing and my delivery, which is something that we are working on here together. <laughs> And um, it was just a, a life of constant readjustment. But all for naught, because I never made a big league roster. I had some of my greatest years at the end of my career. And then to have the game of baseball just turn around and say, okay, thanks for coming. Uh, we're done with you. And I'll still never forget, and again, God rest his soul, dear uh, Jim Fergosi, who I uh, endearingly turned him Uncle Jim because mm. uh, he pulled me aside in my first full spring training in 1991 after having a pretty successful rookie campaign. Uh, he said, listen, man, he says, you got to have more than one basket can't put all your eggs in one basket. You make sure you're prepared for the future. There's going to come a time when you're not going to get to put this uniform. And again, the young man that I thought I was wasn't fully comprehending everything that these guys who cared about me and loved me and wanted to make sure I was prepared for the future, I just wasn't grasping the full weight of their statements. Right. And uh, it wasn't until baseball just basically spit me out like an old piece of gum and left me on the curb mm. and said, no, yeah, we're done with you now. What do I do? Now, in my brain, even though it didn't make it to the big leagues, I had invitation to a few big league camps. And so I was content. But now what? And so I looked at my brother and said, hey, man, let's start a band. <laughs> a band? No musical experience other than hanging out with different musicians. And my best friend and his band was kicking off. And at times when my best friend, Bill Hefner, would ask me, hey, man, why don't you just come and sit down on our drummer's kit? He's taking his bass pedal. But just sit down on the kit and just hit and keep the keep the rhythm for us. So it was self-taught. Nice. By hitting on right-handed shaped drums, but I'm left-handed, so I hit the other direction. So I just self-taught to hit the drums in reverse and then do the fillers. And over the course of time, I actually learned how to play the drums. So uh, we were at this rehearsal studio in uh, West Dallas. And we started walking around to different uh, rooms that doors were open. Said, hey, guys, if you got any old uh, drums laying around, you know, we'll be more than happy to take the donations. And lo and behold, over the course of 30 rooms in this building, we were given a drum kit set. <laughs> and great. this uh, guitarist that we found also had... Uh, a few pieces that he was like, okay, 
Well, now we got a full kit. So set them up like you like them. Being left-handed, I had them all set up one way, and then we just started playing. And before we knew it, we had about 15 songs. And then we were like, all right, what are we going to do now? Well, my best friend's band had played in a uh, battle of the bands at the old Hard Rock Cafe on McKinney Avenue in Uptown Dallas. Yep. And we went with them, and when they came in second place, then they started getting booked at other venues, and they said, hey, we need an opening act. You guys are it. Ah! So by default, we became the opening act for our best friend's band, and we got to do that for a few years. And I guess when you play for 10 years, I guess you're doing something okay. (laughs) Right? Right? (laughs) But then... um, in all of that, it, the drugs got increasingly worse and worse and worse. And over the course of time, my ex-wife, hey, you're never home. We've got two kids. What are you doing? You can't live off of your baseball money forever. You need to get a job. You got to go to work. Well, I started becoming bitter and I started getting frustrated. And um, I am not proud of the way my life turned at that point in time because the alcohol, because the drugs, and it's not an excuse. It's just a fact. Right. But I let that consume me so much that I destroyed my first marriage. And uh, I can only beg for forgiveness so much. But um, I did turn violent and I really hurt my ex-wife to where she was so afraid of me that she went back home to Mexico and she took off with the kids. And then because of the way it turned out, uh, she hid for so many years. To if I didn't see my youngest daughter for almost 20 years. Wow. It wasn't until three years ago that she finally decided to come back home because she wanted to know me and meet me. And so... Uh, that's how brutal and that's how devastating that the alcohol and the drugs had become. They just ruled every aspect of my life. And I was so consumed by it, I did not know how to get out to where the shame, again, that vicious devil just letting me know you are the scum of the earth. You are the most vile, most disgusting human being on the planet to where I just quit going home. I could not go into the house that we shared together where our kids once played and our kids slept to where it got so bad. And I even wrote a poem about it. And it's been published in an anthology of poetry. Wow. The poetry.com called False Echoes. And uh, it was basically, I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would hear my baby crying. And I would get up and go make a bottle and take it into an empty room. Mm. And then there I was alone, dying. And that was just such a channel for the devil to continuously beat me down. Yes. To where I just said, forget it, man. I can't do this anymore. But I was using those as excuses. Mm-hmm. I was allowing the devil to control my every thought. And I was allowing the devil to keep me 
let me keep myself down to where I just took off. And so uh, when the first event happened at what is now AT&T Stadium, the okay. Dallas Cowboys home, uh, my pops being head of security at the American Airlines Center was uh, sent to install instill the security protocols at AT&T nice. before it was called AT&T. <laughs> um, so he took his security team and he instilled their protocols. Well, after that night of the first event, uh, my former high school sweetheart, who's now my current wife, uh, she runs into my pop out there as they're waiting to catch the tram to take them to their parking lot. And when they run into each other, they share an embrace and they talk and they hug. And uh, somehow Cindy says, well, how's JJ? And Pop just kind of shakes his head and says, yeah, he's in a bad way. Uh, you know, he kind of shares briefly, you know, without completely divulging that, you know, he... He's a drug addict. He's an alcoholic and just shared he's not in a good way. And uh, we haven't seen him. He just doesn't come home anymore. We don't really know where he is. And she said, we'll call him. So they call. And at this moment in time, I'm sitting around in a circle. Because uh, at that point, I'm couch surfing with associates. I don't call them friends because <laughs> they weren't friends. Uh, and we were sitting around getting high at sure. the time. When I see the phone ring uh, with both of my grandmothers being elderly and, and knowing that they're in ill of health at this point in time, I actually thought, well, maybe it's something wrong with my grandma or my mamma, either one of them. So I answer the phone as I've got a pipe in my mouth and a lighter in my hand. And I'm like, hey, Pop, what's going on? Everything okay? And he's like, hey, I've got somebody who wants to talk to you. And he grabs, he puts her on the phone and she's like, Hey, do you know who this is? And immediately, I know, I recognize that voice. Wow. It's, it's the most angelic voice I've ever heard to this day. And I'll never forget the stupid thing that came out of my mouth afterwards because I'm a joker. All right. Because I'm somewhat of a clown, and I use moments of levity and silliness to deflect my pain. Right. I pass the pipe and get it out of my hands. I tell them, hey, I got to take this call. And I step up out of the circle, and everybody's looking at me like, Logo never passes up a hit. What's going on? So I was like, oh, yeah. And I said another woman's name. Oh, no. And it happened to be another girl that I dated after her and I really did hurt her feelings. And she's like, I can't believe you said that to me. And I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was kidding. Realizing it wasn't funny. And I said, I know it's you. I know it's you, Cinderella. And the reason we called her Cinderella is because when we dated in high school, she had to be home by midnight. So <laughs> pop started calling her Cinderella and it just stuck. So, <laughs> lo and behold, we talked for almost an hour and pop is like hey uh, i kind of need my phone back you know <laughs> you i gotta go and uh she says well when can i see you and i was like hey if you really care about me you'll give me some time because i'm not in a good way 
So that was that. And we didn't talk for a little while. Uh, unbeknownst to me at that time, she was going through a divorce. And it had been a reality that the reason we split up in college, because one, I was a horrible boyfriend. I was horrible. She actually came to see me while I was at college at Panola, and she got a hotel for us to spend the weekend together. And after the game, I didn't show up. Mm. I went to a party out at the lake because I was a horrible boyfriend. No other excuse than that. <laughs> and so she, knowing that she'd been a devout Christian her whole life, right? knowing that I wasn't living the Christian lifestyle, she had to leave. She had to do what she had to do because in her brain, in her heart, she felt that this wasn't a conducive uh, lifestyle for us to be together. And all the things that she knew in her heart of hearts that I was not going to be loyal, that I was going to be unfaithful, I wasn't living a Christian lifestyle, and she had to do what she had to do. Well, uh, sadly, unfortunately, those same things happened to her anyway in her marriage. And again, um, her two incredible daughters, sweetest, sweetest young ladies that I have the utmost respect for. Um, they were the ones that said, mom, this is not right. You know, uh, you're not happy. Y'all are miserable. Y'all need to divorce. Oh, wow. So, um, just want to make it clear, and the girls know this. Everybody in the place knows this. I'm not a homewrecker. I did not cause this <laughs> because in the day, I would have been. I gotcha. Okay, <laughs> but this was actually this was actually all God led. Even yet, while still being mired in my addiction, but once she had gotten back in touch with me, as the divorce was coming close to being finalized. Uh, she said, well, where are you? I'm going to come and get you. I'm like, you don't want to see me right now. And at that moment in time, I was actually sleeping under a bridge in downtown Dallas, the 75 in Ross. Oh, wow. And so she just said, no, you're going to come with me. Uh, she picked me up, brought me back to her place, introduced me to her daughters. And uh, that was a bold move. <laughs> that was a bold that move. That was a bold move. <laughs> and of course, naturally, you know, being the the clown that I am, guy that likes to be jovial and joking, to hide my pain, to mask all the devastation and destruction on the inside, you know, just constantly one-liners, just being silly, being goofy. You know, naturally they were entertained by it, but they all knew something was not right. And then... At times where uh, I would disappear for a few days at a time, the girls were like, Mom, this isn't right. This isn't right. And at one point, they actually said, we're not doing this. You need to get rid of him or we're done with you. Wow. And she actually had to come to that, draw that line in the sand. And she said, look, I'm not going to lose my kids over you the way that you lost your kids. Right over your problems. So uh, you're either all in or you're all out. And of course, stubborn, 
me pride. Fall of man comes <laughs> in and right. like pack my backpack and seduces them out, you know, and what could she say? What could she do? Right. She, right. She's like, okay, well, so be it. And then comes that fateful morning of January 8, 2011. If you recall the ice storm that was set that year before oh, yeah. the Super Bowl, which yes. was sailed here. Yes, I All do right? remember that. So I'm out on the street, and I have no place to go. And fortunately, I just helped an associate again. <laughs> they were getting evicted out of their apartment. So I was one of the ones that helped them move all of their stuff into a storage unit, an Uncle Bob storage unit on... Uh, uh, off of uh, Greenville Avenue, just south of Lover's Lane. <laughs> I'll never forget. Um, they were the ones that were allowing me to crash on their, their couch. But then the dope ran out, time ran out, and my comfy couch ran out. And when the ice storm hit, that associate said, oh, hey, I don't want you out in the cold but you can't stay with us because they were in a hotel. Get it? Understood? They said, here's the key to the storage unit. Just make sure when you leave, you lock it. Let me know where you're going to be in case I need to get something out of there. All right, cool. So I'm in this Uncle Bob storage unit, and I'm at the end of my rope, and I'm done with it. You know, I'm freezing cold in this metal storage unit. I bet. I'm actually in between the mattresses. And I've gotten all of their clothes off the clothes racks, off the hangers, and I've laid them on top, and I'm trying, and I, I could see my breath, and I'm freezing, and I finally decided, okay, I'm done. This is it. So I fill up my pipe with the largest piece of dope that I had, and I'm trying to light my lighter. And... This is where the hand of God came down. There was a little three-drawer plastic container on wheels sitting right next because I know where everything is because I help pack it and I help move it into storage, right? <laughs> right? I knew there was a package of five big lighters unopened in this top drawer. So I opened the drawer, I opened that package of lighters, and I'm trying to light Every single one of them. I'm using every finger. I'm rubbing off my clothes, off the floor, off the wall, off anything that could get a strike. And none of the lighters would work. Thank you, Jesus. Wow. Wow. So I poured the dope down my throat. Oh, my God. swallowed the largest rock of methamphetamines that... I had ever had in my position at all my life. And I waited for my heart to explode. That was it. I was done. And of course, the delusional brain of an addict, the grandiose, oh, what are my kids going to think when they find me dead? Oh, former pro baseball player found dead in storage unit. No. There's not going to be any headlines. 
but my brain is making up all these scenarios of how the world is going to glorify the guy that was. No. All it was going to be was just man found dead and shit. It wasn't going to be thing that was going to be grandiose about it. It wasn't. It, God had a plan. God had a plan. And after a few hours of my heart racing and pounding through my chest and feeling like a heart attack was about to any minute. Yeah, this went on for about six or seven hours. Oh, my goodness. I'm not cold anymore. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. But I'm not dying. See, what I didn't know that my body had developed such a high tolerance to these drugs after 31 years. Right. That it wasn't going to kill me. I was just going to be on the hardest trip I've ever been in life. And feeling my heart beating through my ears, through my head, through my feet. And there was no end in sight to where finally I picked up the phone and I sent a text message to Cindy saying, there's no way I'm going to survive or stay sober on these streets. Will you please help me? Immediately, she responded, where are you? So I sent her the address of the Uncle Bob storage unit. And mind you, there's ice and snow out on the ground. And from where she lived in her apartment in Carrollton, right at uh, the Carrollton-Lewisville line, it took her an hour and a half to navigate through the ice and snow to come and pick me up. And then another hour and a half to get back. Wow. And then the ice, she still went back to work that next Monday. And by the time the ice and snow had melted on that Tuesday, she had arranged for an intervention with my parents, my former best friend, Bill, that's another side story, and the two interventionists. And when they came walking through the door, it was my parents, the interventionist, and my former best friend, who is now my best friend again. <laughs> but the side note there was at one point in time, he and I had a falling out over the drugs mm. to where he strip searched me thinking that I had stolen his drugs at gunpoint. Oh, wow. And when he saw me down to my underwear and nothing else, realizing I didn't have his drugs, then I got dressed and I looked right at him and I said, God saved your life today. So next time I see you, one of us dies. Now this is the guy known as Loco. My teammates still to this day, well, when they call me loco, they don't call me by my name. They, they, band members, people from that era, right? They just say, just calling you anything other than loco is just not right. <laughs> and so, to this day, so many people still call me loco, right? And so, 
when Bill came walking through that day for the intervention on January 11th, 2011, it was a Tuesday. Yeah. We went straight to each other and we embraced. And with that embrace, Loco died right then and there. So prophecy fulfilled. When I said one of us dies, <laughs> the next time I see you, we embraced and with that embrace, Loco was dead. Now, my friends from the past, they still let Loco live, but I don't. Right. I don't. So I only answer to it to a select few, right? But uh, I, uh, listening to them read their letters and uh, one of my uncles, Uncle Willie, who had passed away uh, about seven years ago, uh, wrote a very poignant letter because he was one of the ones that he felt that was the reason why I turned to drugs. And it was just me trying to hang out with the cool kids. It was me trying to hang out with the the big boys on our side of the family. And it was just, you know, but when the interventionist started kind of talking to me kind of firm, hey, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. And I'm like, hey, man, hold on, time out. Who are you again? <laughs> and so he said his name, and it wasn't until I stopped to realize and hear his name, it's like, wait a minute. I looked at, at Bill, and I said, Bill, didn't we play baseball for a man with that name? And he goes, yeah, that's my uncle. Oh, wow. So it turns out that this man, the interventionist, Nick Athis, was named after his uncle, who Bill and I played baseball for, for the Scorpions back when we were 15 years old. It's the intricate weave <laughs> that God just has through all of this. Right. Right? And in reflecting on all of that past and knowing that all of these people, I'm, I feel like I'm the Forrest Gump of baseball. If you're familiar with Forrest Gump, you know how... Um, the T-shirts with the smiley face came about. Right, When yes. he had the mud all over his face, he wiped his face and left a smiley face. That guy runs with it, right? Right. And then, of course, uh, when he gets to go to the White House again and he's staying at the hotel and he sees the hotel across the street and all the, the flashlights and water gates. Right. Right? And all those different things. Well, so much in my life is such a reflection of just the silly, crazy instances that happen. <laughs> uh, having my former teammate from the Phillies organization, Jamie Cepeda, running into him at AT&T Stadium, and he's asking me, hey, man, what are you doing here? And I said, you see that new baseball stadium? I live just across the street from it. I'm like, you're not from here. What are you doing here? He goes, you see that new baseball stadium? I built it. <laughs> so all of these things just tying together. It's like, okay. All right. So I go into rehab that Tuesday evening and find out it's run by former NFL linebacker. God rest his soul. All of my mentors have passed. <laughs> and it's, it's a legacy that I have to continue. Right. Because of his program, 
Isaiah Robertson, NFL linebacker, long time for the uh, Los Angeles Rams and then the Buffalo Bills. And such a great, great human being. Uh, when he was able to finally get to me, because shortly after my intro into the House of Isaiah drug treatment program, another ice storm hits, and that's during the Super Bowl. Right. Right? And so once he's able to finally get back to us, he comes in and he says, hey, listen, he goes, as one pro athlete to another, I'm going to do you a solid, and I'm going to allow you to go here for free under one stipulation. You're going to become a house leader. He goes, I've never done this before in the 21 years that I've been running my facility. He goes, but you're going to become a house leader now, and you're going to make sure you keep my house clean. And if anybody sneaks any drugs in or if anybody uh, makes any batch of hooch, it's going to go against you, and then you're going to have to start back pay, and you're going to pay for the rest of your time here. Wow. So what a great responsibility. All right. But it was also a driving force that helped me again use my determination to make sure that I stayed clean and sober. And I'm proud to say today I've been walking with Christ. It was a faith-based program that for the first time made me really open my Bible and made me start to learn Bible verses and learn how to apply these Bible verses to every aspect of my life. And I'm proud to say I've been walking with Christ faithfully ever since January 11, 2011. That is awesome. I, that is such an amazing story. And to find myself now, after all those trials, after all those tribulations, after all that time, to now be the head baseball coach at Grace Prep <laughs> Academy. You know, I mean called in to be the pitching coach at Prestonwood and I had four glorious years at Prestonwood and PCA will always be home it will always be my first start as a high school coach but but before you turn sour and look at me sideways Jaden I'm happy to say that Grace Prep is my new home and how appropriate that I'm at a school whose first name starts with grace by being blessed with so much abundant grace over the years and having the opportunity to be a part of such another loving community as grace prep who have received me with open arms and i love every single day that i get to go to work and maintaining that perspective i don't have to i get to. <laughs> i love that you know i I don't got to do this. I get to do this. And every day that I wake up and I look in the mirror, I make sure to tell myself, you're made in God's image. You are beautiful. And I share that with these, I call them kids. They're young adults. But <laughs> I share that with them. If you don't look in the mirror and you don't see that you are made in God's image and you are absolutely beautiful as you are, then you're not focused on the proper things. And I make sure that every day that I get to share a little bit more about myself, that I maintain complete transparency mm -hmm. with these kids. They see my vulnerabilities and they see, you know, he's, he's human. 
right. and to get to connect with them on that one-on-one level, but letting them know that no matter what you're going through, God still loves you. And sharing my testimony with them, I'm hoping that they see a light at the end of the tunnel. And I, I hope these guys get to share with you that when we pray, I'm always praying about let our actions be the light that leads others to you. And it starts with grace and it ends with grace. But in between, it's filled with so much love. And so much of it starts with keeping Christ in your heart, keeping Christ on your tongue. And we've got so many scriptures, Amen. you know, uh, as I try to every day that our little uh, coaches daily devotionals come out and coach cliff godwin from uh east carolina university has been a major influence in this and he shares with us uh the tim tebow daily devotional and that's what i share with y'all in the group me and that's what i share with these guys and you know i i let it be known guys if you're not living in the word you're missing out if you're not walking in God's light, you're missing out, and it's easy to fall astray. So protect your heart. Keep your eyes focused on Christ. Keep your tongue, because what comes out of our mouth is what defiles us. Yes. All right? And this is where we make sure that we keep it a Christ-centered program, not just a grace prep, but in my everyday walk of life. Right. Wherever I may go. And I'm not ashamed to share my story with any. And sometimes my wife, God bless her, she'll just sit there quietly as I'm talking with our server at a restaurant. Or I'm <laughs> talking with another patron sitting beside us. And uh, they'll see my key tag hanging off my keychain. And they're like, oh, yeah, I'm familiar with that. And it's an N.A. for Narcotics Anonymous. Uh-huh. It's like, yeah, my cousin has been through this, or, you know, uh, I've struggled with this, and I just turn and share with them what God has done for me. I, I don't throw scripture at them. I don't preach to them. I just share what God has done for me. Right. And I share that even yet, while I was still a sinner, I was as high as a person could possibly be, and I cried out, God, please just take this all away. I don't want to live like this anymore. Not even five seconds after saying that, I pulled a cigarette off my ear, and I liked that cigarette, and I gagged like I had never, ever smoked before. I had been smoking for over 21 years. I was up to almost two packs a day. Wow. And he delivered right then and there. And not only that, I had a cup of coffee right beside me. And so that coffee that I've been making to my taste for over 25 years, I tried to wash that nasty taste out of my mouth, and it too made me gag. Like, I had never, ever drank coffee before. Now, when I stop and reflect, what did I just ask? I said, God, please take it all away. I didn't say, please just take the drugs away. Please just take the carousing away. Please just take the sinful thoughts away. I said, God, please take it all. And he did. That's amazing. And when I stood up and realized I'm free. I fell to my knees, 
and I cried like a baby. And I have been cigarette-free, tobacco-free, nicotine-free, caffeine-free <laughs> since May 31st, 2011, five months into my rehab stay. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So if you see me drinking a carbonated beverage, it's usually either a root beer or a big red. <laughs> that's what Chad likes. <laughs> so you know, I don't drink Coke. I don't drink Dr. Pepper. I, I don't drink the caffeinated drinks. I, I will have a root beer, which is caffeine-free, mm -hmm. and I'll have a big red, also caffeine-free. <laughs> and it's just, it's such a beautiful feeling knowing that even one of the most vile sinners, such as myself, who could be kind of referred to as Saul of Tarsus, the biggest persecutor of Christians that ever right. walked the planet, that eventually became Paul. Now, right. I'm not saying that I am Paul by any means. <laughs> I'm saying that I was like Saul. Right. To where everything that I saw, all the hypocrisy of the Christians in the mm -hmm. cult that I will remain nameless, of the church that I was attending, seeing all the altar boys in my closet getting high with me on Friday night and Saturday night and getting drunk with me before we go to church on Sunday morning. And then afterwards, seeing the preacher two-fisted at the barbecues with my uncles oh, and my dad out of the backyard to say, wait, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. And seeing him light up a heater and smoking a cigarette, it was like, wait, that's not right. Again, the sinner in me being judgmental was like, you hypocrite. All the while being a hypocrite myself, you know, and so that letting the devil have his day and me doing all of the things that I shouldn't have been doing. I shouldn't have been judging him. I shouldn't have been going through any of this, but I was because I did not know how to protect myself with God's word. I've only been clean and sober for a little over 12 years and nine months. But in that time, I have learned to any of my problems, any of the things that are bothering me, get in the Word and let God's Word lead the way. And that goes to my spiritual advisor, my spiritual counselor, a dear friend from junior high at West Mesquite Junior High, who is now has a double doctorate in theology, and she lives in Florida, and Dr. Delina Browning, and she has been my spiritual mentor, and she has been there when, after rehab, Cindy and I split up because she said, well, you need to get a job, and you need to start being a productive member of society. Well, at that point in time, I was still lost. Yeah, I'm clean and sober, I didn't know which direction to go yet. And right. it's like, uh, well, we actually split up. And so one night I reached out on Messenger and told Delina, I really need to talk to somebody. She sent me her number. We got on the phone that night and from 8 p.m. Central Time, and she lives in Florida, so it's 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Right. We talked on the phone until 8 a.m. the next morning. <laughs> For over 12 hours, and she walked me through the Bible. She said, just let it fall open, and whatever it falls to, read it. Mm -hmm. And she goes, if you've got something that's troubling you, 
find it. Put the word on it and let the word of Jesus take it and let him have it. Put the, put the word at Jesus' feet and let him take the wheel. And that has stuck with me all these years. And now it's everything that I do. Whenever there's something that bothers me, I try to either think of a verse or something. And over these years, it's really become more of a habit. Mm -hmm. And now I have verses that tie into uh, my everyday trials and tribulations. And once I stop and realize, hey, man, you're not putting God first. You're trying to drive this boat. And you take your hands off the wheel. Let go and let God. <laughs> you know, it sounds so cliche, but it is an absolute truth. Yes. Let go and let God. For somebody who's been steering the boat, and this is where the, the me, myself, and I come in, I will argue with me, me will argue with myself, and then it's just a vicious circle. It's like, stop it. Stop it. Because my track record, with me trying to steer, is always taking me down the wrong path. Right. When I let go and let God, then I'm on his path. Yep. And he leads the way. He leads every footstep. He leads every direction. And I'm always quick to remember, if I'm not letting God take the wheel, then I'm wrong. And here we are today at age 55. And now the head baseball coach at Grace Prep Academy, and I know, I know, God rest him, my former high school baseball coach, Dan Easley, and Coach Hicks, our crosstown rival from North Mesquite, who passed away a few years ago. Uh, I know those guys are smiling down at him, and I know Isaiah is smiling down from heaven. I know my Uncle Charlie is smiling from heaven, and now, since both my grandmothers and both my grandfathers have passed on, I know they're smiling in heaven, knowing that I have turned my life around and I'm walking hand in hand with Christ every day. And every single day, I know I get to go out to be a part of something so beautiful and something so incredible as what Grace Prep has in store for me. And I'm trying to build this program to prominence. And I'm trying to make sure we keep it Christ-centered and keep it structured to where the guys see that I not only talk the talk, but I walk the walk. And I'm excited and really just blessed beyond belief. And I'm so grateful. <laughs> well, I would say that you're doing an amazing job with the Grace Prep. And I, I firmly believe, like I've told you, I think a million times, you were... I know you were brought here for Grace Prep, but you entered our lives when we needed you. And you made a huge difference to us and to Jaden. And and you will always hold a place in our hearts because of that. Um, you know, God God put you with us at the right time, you know? <laughs> so um, when you want the what's best for your kid and, and you feel like they're not getting it sometimes it's it's such a blessing to see that come to fulfillment and we thank you for that. And I I totally like I'm amazed by your story. You have so many like things that you did and life experiences that that you still came out on top and 
And I, I do, do love your wife. Your life, your, your wife's amazing. I actually asked her if she wanted to come and tell kind of her side of it. She, yeah, she was a little shy. I told her there wasn't a camera in there, so maybe she'll consider it right, next time. Right, right, <laughs> and and that is so going all the way back to high school. It, it, my parents at first didn't like her because when she would come visit. She would just come into the house. I would just tell her, when you get here, just walk on in. So she didn't knock on the door, and my parents would be in the living room watching TV, and she would just walk right through and not say anything to them, and then walk back to come see where I was. And my dad finally said, hey, wait, you, you walk into my house? You don't even say hi to me? She's like, well, because I'm shy. It's like, no, 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 we don't do that here. We don't do that here, so... Uh, she's still extremely shy. Yeah. She doesn't like the limelight, you know, and of course, I always joke with her, we're oil and water. Yeah. We're, we're complete <laughs> opposites, you know. It's like, and uh, she she just prefers to be all to the side, not in the forefront, but I, I cannot, I cannot go throughout the day without acknowledging that her faithfulness this blood helps save. Yeah. So I will always claim that I married to my own personal guardian angel. That she is. She's amazing. Well, I want to thank you again. This has been so great. I thank you again for being my first guest. I'm, I'm happy that you shared this story with us. Thank you for having me. And uh, the blessing in itself for uh you naming this podcast make an adjustment it just uh i'm just i'm i'm truly overwhelmed and i'm honored completely it's just uh, that day uh, and and with most everything that i post on my social media i try to make sure it's god-led uh whether it's instructional videos about hitting instructional videos about pitching or uh just making sure that I'm proclaiming victory in Jesus Christ in all that I do. When I post pictures of myself or with my wife or with my family, you know, it's all God's grace. It's all God's grace. It's nothing that I've done by myself. And, it, uh, you know, just being where I am today, uh, not only the happiest man, but I will proclaim it till my dying days. I could possibly be the most blessed man on the planet today. I love that. Uh, I love that. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you. And and I will say that just one last thing. They, um, the day you made that post, it was like in neon for me. So I think you were God-led on that one too. Well, I want you to stay encouraged <laughs> and I want you to keep doing this because I listen. Thank you. And, I feel like you're my biggest fan. <laughs> I listen, and each time there's always so much that I want to just type and type and type and like, look, yeah, because there's so many parallelisms and yes. there's so many different things, and you know, and yes, I'll teach y'all how to play the drums. Yes, I'm more than happy yes. to work with y'all on that too, and then <laughs> I can see if my best friend is willing to bring his guitar and come oh, in and have little jam sessions because uh, he is such a great musician. He's one of those self-taught. Uh, this guy, Bill Hefner, is one of the most talented human beings on the planet. Self-taught to play 
every instrument, the guitar, the bass, the drums, the piano, the keyboards. That's amazing. I mean, he can do it all. And um, he's been an inspiration to me. His family actually took me in when my parents had had enough of me in high school and said, no, if you're not going to school, you're not living here. So no. I was kind of like sleeping in my car, just driving around town. And his parents finally said, no, you, you come and stay with us. And his dad gave me keys to the car, keys to the house. Wow. He gave me an allowance, just like he gave all of his own kids. <laughs> he said, but you're going to go to school. And so for about a week, I went to North Mesquite High School <laughs> with my best friend without any paperwork. And it wasn't until the teacher finally said, hey, who are you and where's your paperwork? Uh, you need to go to the office and get this resolved. So Bill threw me his keys. He goes, be back here at 3.30 to pick me up. I just drove around town until he got out of school. And then, then it was like, all right, man, well, now you're not in school anymore. You got to go. Okay, yeah. So that's when I ended up down at my grandmother's house. But so many different stories. Right, so many exactly. Yeah, and we could be here for hours. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we'll do a part two at some point. Okay. <laughs> Again, thank you for having me. And Jaden? Happy birthday again, brother. Now, can you do us the honors and take us out in prayer today, please? Uh, yes. Uh, dear Lord, thank you for this day. Um, I'm excited that we had uh, our Coach Munoz on today on this podcast, and I'm thankful for my mom and thankful for giving me another year of life and that we can all just have a good day. Amen. 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 And on that note, we'll see you next week. God bless you all. <laughs>